Last week, brothers and sisters, I began my sermon by saying that upon my first inspection of the previous chapter, chapter 23, I had no idea why God in his wisdom saw fit to put a chapter about the Sabbath and feast days in a section about practical inward holiness. Why is this here? That was the question I was asking, and it's really the question that we sought to answer last week. The answer which we saw to that, and which, as I said, uh, the first time I realized it, it was like a duh moment to me, is that, of course, the Sabbath is mentioned in a section about practical holiness. It was the main day for the worship of Israel when they would grow in holiness. As I said last week, God is not merely the standard of holiness, that to which we are to strive, but more than that, he is holiness itself and the very fountain of it. By setting aside one day in seven to put off all other activities, whether work or recreation, whatever might hinder worship, and to come and sit and drink, as it were, directly from the fountain of holiness, by doing so, Israel would grow steadily in holiness, Sabbath by Sabbath. We considered what this shows us as far as the importance, the connection between the church's holiness, her strength, her sanctification, and her worship on the Lord's day. God's people under the new covenant still have a Sabbath, not a seventh-day Sabbath, but a first-day Sabbath, the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection of our Lord And although God may and does sanctify us all throughout the week, yet it is especially by the week-in and week-out worship on the Lord's Day that the church is sanctified and conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Well, I mention all that again, particularly my, my initial befuddlement of why that chapter was there, because when I came to this chapter, I found myself asking the same question, but like even more so, okay, but seriously, why is this actually here in the holiness code? Um, I said that the previous chapter, and that was true, I meant it, but at least there, at least as a a preacher, I had an inkling. This is going to have something to do with the Sabbath, and okay, that's the worship day, and it's holiness and all that. Um, With this chapter, to be quite honest, I was really scratching my head. I even thought about skipping over the first half just focusing on the case of the blasphemer. Now, as far as the basic contents of the chapter, it's very straightforward, and that's not mystical at all. The first half deals with the maintenance and care of the golden lampstand, and then it deals with the showbread, and then the second half deals with the case of a blasphemer, which we should note even in and of itself is a very odd pairing. Another question we'll ask today is not just, why is this chapter here, but why are these two things together in this chapter? Thematically, the lampstand and the showbread and the case of a blasphemer, they don't don't really seem to go together, right? Nevertheless, aside from all that, the content of the chapter in and of itself is fairly easy enough. Its relation to the material around it is not so clear at first. What makes this all the more strange is that the following chapter is very much connected with chapter 23. 
Chapter 23 deals with the Sabbath and the feast days. Chapter 25, excuse me, deals with the Sabbath year and then the Jubilee, which comes after seven Sabbath years. It makes sense why they go together. But in between them, you have instructions about the lampstand and showbread and the case of, an unbel- of a blasphemer. It doesn't make any sense. Elsewhere, when we've seen that there are kind of chapters that form bookends, you see a high degree of structure and coherence. It makes sense why some passages mirror one another. They're highlighting what goes in between. We saw this with chapters 17 through 19. Chapters 17 and 19 mirror one another. And then in between them, chapter 18, in the very smack dab center of chapter 18, you have the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The bookends are kind of setting that up. Then you come here and you go, okay, if chapters 23 and 25 are mirroring one another, we would expect 24 to be connected somehow. But at first, you're like, what's going on here? Even Gordon Wenham writes, generally, quote, commentators have been unable to discern any obvious connection between the material in this chapter and what precedes it and what follows it. And though I normally like Wenham, he was kind of one of those commentators. He didn't really have many solutions for why it's here. Nevertheless, despite all of that, I do think actually there are some very, very profound things going on in this chapter, and there is a high degree of coherence if we are willing to meditate a little bit harder and give Scripture the benefit of the doubt. You know, I said a couple of weeks ago that Scripture has no junk drawers, okay? We all have junk drawers in your house. If you don't know what a junk drawer is, it's the drawer typically in the kitchen that you put everything that doesn't have a place anywhere else, right? Like your tape and your batteries and whatever else can go in there. Coupons, for whatever reason, in my family were there. It's the junk drawer. Scripture has no junk drawer. Everything has its perfect place, and all the parts are fitted together as a whole. There's coherence. There's no remainders that God kind of goes, well, we'll just put this stuff here, right? Ultimately, I think what this chapter is all about is, again, the Sabbath, which makes sense when we consider the chapters around it. Now, I admit that these insights are not my own. I have to confess that. Um, it, I talked about meditating harder. Uh, I read a book who told me this stuff, okay? I'm not, I'm not that brilliant. Um, I got them again from Michael Morales' book on Leviticus, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Morales makes a solid case, I believe, that as he says, this chapter, quote, symbolizes the ideal Sabbath. Symbolizes the ideal Sabbath. And in fact, he argues that especially verses 1 through 9 with their symbolism, quote, are the theological heart of, verse, of chapters 23 through 25. Now, perhaps you're wondering, okay, fine, you've thrown down the gauntlet. How on earth are the lampstand, the showbread, um, the theological heart of, a chapter, of two, three chapters about Sabbaths? Um, And how does the case of the blasphemer even relate to that? Well, that's what we want to explore today. And I think, Lord willing, um, we'll actually see some very beautiful gems in Scripture if we dig a little deeper. In fact, when I was studying this, I had my own, like, duh moment. 
and I was so excited. I came out of my study, and I just talked Annika's ear off for like 15 minutes, and she's busy, and she's like, that's great, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go back and work now, right? I was so excited, and so I'm sure um, we'll, we'll be excited again, and though this is about the Sabbath, I do think there's some, some fresh application for us different from last week, and particularly um, some gospel application as well, okay? Well, let's go ahead and turn to our text now. The way I'd like to go through this is I want us to first consider the what of the passage. What is it talking about in and of itself without any relation to the other parts uh, or the larger context? Then we'll consider the how, particularly how is this related to the chapters around it? And really, how is this a picture of the ideal Sabbath? Um, And we'll focus on the first half of the chapter, then the second, and then we'll close with some application, okay? All right. Well, let's first consider the what of the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 9. Beginning again, or we haven't read this part yet, beginning in verse 1, says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a lamp may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Now, these verses deal with the oil and the regular maintenance of the lampstand. This material is not, in fact, new. It's basically a shorter form of previous material in Exodus 27. And even that should tell us that Moses is up to something here. Um, If this were a junk drawer, why would Moses be repeating material? That would be even more unnecessary, right? So just keep that in mind. Well, with the command for the people to bring the oil, we also see specific instructions to the priest. They were to keep the lights burning regularly during the night. This is why it says they're to burn from evening to morning. Now, even that, you could take that and make a sermon out of it. That's some really beautiful uh, symbolism. While everyone else in the camp had put out their lamps to go to sleep, God's lamp is still burning at nighttime because he is not, in fact, asleep. He's awake. He's keeping watch over his people while they rest. He's guarding them. You almost wonder if that was partly the inspiration for David's words in some of the Psalms. Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 3, 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Perhaps. All right, picking up in verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day... Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. 
These verses here, as you can see, deal with the bread of the table of the presence, sometimes also referred to as the showbread. Though we have, in Exodus before this, heard about the table and the bread, and though back then we peeked at this passage, yes, we, yet we must keep in mind that this material here, this content, the arranging of the bread, the number of the loaves, the day upon which it's to be changed out, none of that had been revealed yet up to this point. That should tell us again, something's going on here. This is probably pretty important. Now, as far as the basic what of these verses, we see the amount of flour that's to be used, two-tenths of an ephah from my Google wanderings. That's a good amount of flour. These are good-sized loaves. Notice that there are 12 of them. As you know, the number 12 symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel. So these loaves most likely symbolize, symbolize each of the 12 tribes, which makes sense since they are said to be, quote, from the people of Israel. Notice that the 12 are divided into two piles of six. Commentators think that that's simply a common way for the tribes to be divided. For example, back when we were looking at the high priestly garments, he has two onyx stones that connect the front and the back of the priestly garments. And God says that on one you shall write the names of six of the tribes, and on the other the names of the other six. So six and six is a common way for dividing, mentioning the 12 tribes. Just as with the regular maintenance of the lamps, so also we see in verse 8 that there is regular maintenance of the bread. It is to be changed out every Sabbath day. At least that's what it means when it says, every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. Furthermore, we know he's talking about fresh bread, because what do the priests get to do? They get to eat the old bread, right? Aaron and his sons get to eat it out of God's portion. That was the bread that was on display the previous week. So new bread is put on out. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 21, concerning when David takes some of the bread, it says, So the priests gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away, okay? Well, that in a, nuts, in a nutshell is the basic what uh, of the first half of the chapter. That's the content in and of itself. Now we want to ask, how is this related to the Sabbath and the stuff around it? The first connection to the Sabbath is the element of time, and particularly the division of time along the Sabbath principle of one in seven. For example, with the lampstand, there is a mention of time there, though it's very brief. It says in verse three, the lamps are to burn, quote, from evening to morning before the Lord. It's not an exact parallel, but in the previous chapter, it describes the Sabbath as being from evening to evening. And at least when I read that, that popped out to me. And I think it does, it probably would have popped out to the hearers as well. Furthermore, and I found this very insightful, like this is why I said you just have to meditate and you'll remember things. We must remember there are seven lamps on the golden lampstand. There's seven of them. Seven lights, we could say. Remember that God originally calls the stars, the moon, and, and the sun, he calls them the lights that he puts in heaven, and he says that they are for seasons, 
for times, for days, and for years, right? They are, in effect, dividing time, okay? Well, here, we have, as it were, a sevenfold division of time. Vern Poitras, Poitras writes, The heavenly bodies were made in order to serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. The whole cycle of time of the Hebrew calendar marked by the sun and the moon and the stars, is divided up into sevens. The seventh day in the week is the Sabbath. The seventh month is the month of atonement. The seventh year is the year of release. The seventh of the seven-year cycles is the year of jubilee. Fittingly, the lampstand contains the same sevenfold division of time. I think that's true, and I think it's a keen insight there. Next, with the showbread there is also a mention of time, and it's explicitly sabbatical. Verse 8 says, Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. Now, interestingly, in the Hebrew, it's a little stronger than that. You would literally say, From Sabbath day to Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It kind of ha Sabbath has a bit more punch to it there, okay? So time, and particularly Sabbath time is something found both in the lampstand and in the showbread, which fits the larger pattern of the Sabbath in the, in the previous and following chapters. However, you might still be wondering, and understandably so, okay, great, there's Sabbath stuff. How is this a picture, though, really of the ideal Sabbath? Well, we're just getting started, okay? The next thing to note is, as Morales says, the lampstand and the table and the bread are not two separate pictures or symbols, but rather they go together as one whole picture. They're one whole symbolism together. He says, the bread of the presence in verses 5 through 9 should be read in the light, literally, of the lampstand. In fact, the original instructions for the lampstand in Exodus 25, quite similar to those in Numbers 8, make the inclusion of the table of showbread normative for the lampstand's symbolism. What he's saying is we should understand the changing out of the bread on the Sabbath and the light of the lampstands as one whole picture because, as he points out, the lampstand and the table often go together. In fact, if we were to go back in Exodus 25, where it talks about where everything is to be arranged inside the tabernacle... It says, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Well, what goes in the space in front of it? The bread of the presence, says in the following chapter. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. So the lamp was not there just to give a general sort of light, but especially to light upon the bread of the presence. It's one complete picture. Well, what is that picture? Well, if you remember that the light of the lampstand, as we saw in Exodus, represents God's glorious presence, which is also why the bread is called the bread of the presence, right? It's the lampstand of the presence as well. If you remember that, and if we remember that the 12 loaves of bread represent the 12 tribes of Israel, then it is on the Sabbath day that the 12 tribes, as it were, 
come into the light of God's presence and are renewed and made new again, symbolized by the changing and renewing of the bread. Morales writes, This picture, I propose, symbolizes the ideal Sabbath. The 12 tribes of Israel basking in the divine light, being renewed in God's presence, Sabbath by Sabbath. I think he's actually right. First, when I read that, I was like, I'm not so sure. I think he's actually right, and it makes sense of all the rest of the passage. That's why it's here uh, with two chapters on either side around, uh, dealing with the Sabbath. It also makes sense of why the instructions for the lampstand are repeated, because even though the material is not new, yet in order to see the full picture, you have to have the lampstand in there as well. Furthermore, as he points out in verse 8, it says that the placing of the bread before the Lord every Sabbath is, quote, a covenant forever. Now, certain things, a very small number of things under the law are said to explicitly be the covenant, or they symbolize it. They are signs of the covenant. They encapsulate it. One of them is the Sabbath, Exodus, Exodus 31, 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Here, the placing of the bread is said to be a covenant forever. And Morales argues, and I think he's correct, it's a symbol and picture of the Sabbath, which is itself a covenant forever, and so it is called a covenant forever. He concludes and says, We may therefore say Leviticus 24, 1 through 9, 1 through 9 as a symbol is the theological heart to chapters 23 to 25. By coming Sabbath by Sabbath into God's presence, Israel is renewed and refreshed and transformed in holiness. Now, it's interesting. Um, I, I love the, the idea of fresh bread as a picture there. We'll get to the second half in a moment here. Um, but notice just the beauty of the imagery of bread being renewed. Um, there's something amazing. There's something that just feels like home of fresh bread that has just come out of the oven. The smell of it, feel of it, the taste, even like the sound of it when it crunches. Um, I know in California, it's very famous in the Bay Area, there's this place that makes, it's called Boudin's, I think that's how you say it. They make really good sourdough bread. And you go there and they make these huge loaves and they're famous for clam chowder in a bowl and the bowl is made out of the bread. And you walk into Boudin's and just, oh, the smell of the bread. There's something about fresh bread. God says that that's what the Sabbath does for our souls. It freshens them. It gives them life. We come out of church hot and fresh, as it were, as fresh bread comes out of the oven. It's interesting that in both the Old and the New Testament, it is often the light of God's glory which renews and sanctifies. Consider again 2 Corinthians 3.18 we looked at before. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
Or in the following chapter, in verses 16 through 18, he continues the theme. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are eternal. Notice the connection between eternal and glory. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What are the things we look at? The glorious things that await us. We behold them by faith, right? This renews us day by day. Remember also in that whole passage when we considered it, Paul really takes that whole theme from Exodus where Moses is upon Mount Sinai and he comes down himself transformed by the light of God's glory, right? should not surprise us then that this happens particularly on the Lord's day since it is on this day particularly when we gather to behold the glorious things of Christ from his word. If your soul is feeling a bit old, stale, dry, at worst, moldy, right? Be sure to rest and worship on the Lord's day. By doing so, you will find refreshment and renewal in holiness as you worship your God. All right, let's continue on now with the second half of the chapter. It should not take us as long to expound. As far as the what of the passage, it's, again, pretty straightforward. Verse 10. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomit the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Now, as far as what this man actually did, I don't think it just means he cursed using the name of the Lord, though I guess it could mean that. Maybe he said he's fighting this man, and he said something along the lines of, may the Lord curse you, or something like that. Not entirely sure that that's the case, because it also mentions blaspheming the name, which seems to be stronger. Nor is it the case, as Jews argue, that what he did was simply utter the name. You know, Jews, if you've ever heard, at least Orthodox Hasidic Jews, I think, um, they just refer to God as Hashem, the name. They don't say his name, he's just Hashem. This man's sin, they say, was he actually uttered it, Yahweh. Look at that sinful Christian pastor just uttered the name of God, right? That's what they said. I don't think it's that either. Rather, it seems more that he cursed the name of the Lord itself, which is also why it said he blasphemed it. 
Perhaps there is a clue in the fact that his father was an Egyptian. Maybe secretly in his heart, he still held on to the God of his fathers rather than the God of his mother. And so he curses the Lord. An interesting thing to note in this passage is that when they were to stone the man, it says in verse 14, those who heard him, who heard him speak the blasphemy, the witnesses, are to lay their hands on his head. And that's interesting because normally, as we've seen with sacrifices, to lay your hands on the head of something is to transfer guilt. The guilt of Israel transferred upon the scapegoat, right? Um, That may be something along the lines of the meaning here. Gordon Wenham, for example, says, blasphemy brings guilt on those who hear it as well as the blasphemer himself. Now, technically, that's not true. Um, You are not guilty just because you heard someone else sin. But perhaps under the law, um, maybe by merely hearing blasphemy, just as many things can make someone unclean, maybe it brought guilt and that's what they're doing, right? It could also be, and this is what John Gill suggests, and he gets this from Jewish sources, that the laying the hands on the head here is kind of like the pronouncement of guilt and the giving of the death sentence. We see throughout the Old Testament the phrase, your blood be upon your head, right? Or your blood be upon you. It often occurs in the context of someone being guilty and receiving the death penalty. So for example, Leviticus 20.19, anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Another interesting one is in 2 Samuel chapter 1. The Amalekite comes to David thinking he's going to get a reward because he put Saul to death. Saul was dying. He finished Saul off. So he comes to David thinking he's going to get a reward. David says to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. In other words, You are surely guilty and deserve to die. Your own mouth has testified against you. Therefore, here, when the witnesses place their head on the blasphemer, it is probably to symbolize the sentence of guilt, the death penalty. In fact, John Gill notes that according to the Jews, the sentence of guilt was pronounced typically as follows. Your blood be upon your head, and we not punished for your death, which you have been the cause of to yourself. I think that makes sense. All right. Well, with that, the chapter wraps up with a summary of principles of equity in justice called the lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. Look at verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel And they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus, the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Just notice briefly that this is perfect justice here. 
A lot of people uh, misunderstand the lex talionis, and many have twisted it for their own purposes, but they misunderstand it as promoting injustice and sinful revenge. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's limiting sinful revenge and retaliation. The punishment must fit the crime. You can't go beyond that, right? All right. Well, that in a nutshell is the what of the second half of the chapter. But now let's ask the how. How is this related to the Sabbath? And how on earth does this relate to the lampstand and the showbread? Here again, I think Morales is helpful. He argues that the case of the blasphemer, quote, serves as something of a contrast to the Sabbath ideal expressed in verses 1 through 9. It's the opposite. It's a contrast. It's a foil. We might say it's, it's the sinful background, the dark background, which makes the light of the Holy Sabbath pop out in the first half of the chapter. Morales notes, as far as how it relates to the Sabbath, he says, the second half of the chapter is full of contrasts with the first. For example, whereas the first half deals with the inner sanctuary of God's tabernacle, the second half ends outside of the camp entirely. Whereas the first half deals with tribes of Israel, in the second half we hear a mention of the old enemy in the place of slavery, Egypt. Furthermore, he notes that there's a great contrast between keeping the Sabbath and blaspheming God's name because the two are often connected. And it's interesting to note in this passage that God's name is here stated as the name. It's almost like a definite pronoun, right? Like the name is God's name in a certain sense. He argues that in many ways to blaspheme the name is tantamount to profaning the Sabbath. How? Well, not only are God's name and his Sabbath both said to be holy, they often go together. What's the third and the fourth commandment? It's to do with the name and the Sabbath. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Aside from idolatry, those are the other two things mentioned in the first table of the law. God's name and his Sabbath. Furthermore, the name of God is also related to the light of his glory and thereby the lamps in the tabernacle. For example, in the famous Aaronic blessing of Numbers chapter 6, Aaron is to ask God to make his face to shine upon Israel. And God says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel. Perhaps even more is interesting, if we connect back to Moses being transformed by God's glory on Mount Sinai, remember that the revelation of God's brilliant glory is the same thing as the pronouncement of his name. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. Furthermore, not only is the sanctuary said to be the place where God's glory dwells, as in Psalm 26, 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells, it's also the place where his name dwells. You see this particularly in Deuteronomy. God says wherever he chooses for his tabernacle to go, that's where he has chosen to make his name dwell. 
And so, to blaspheme God's name is to blaspheme His glory instead of loving it and drawing near to it and basking in its light on the Sabbath day. That's how they contrast. Well, now let's conclude this afternoon by asking not the what or the how, but the most important, the so what, right? The most most important part of every sermon, the so what. Pastor, if all this is true, then so what? Well, aside from the obvious direct application of keeping the Sabbath, I think we might also draw out some beautiful gospel application here. If we take the Sabbath more broadly than just the day of rest, but as it is also taken in Scripture, for the rest of salvation in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, it is way beyond our time to do a full exposition here. And Hebrews, in and of itself, to like just preach one chapter is like, because it's, it's pretty deep stuff. But we'll just paint with broad brushstrokes here. We'll note several things. First, the Sabbath mentioned in this chapter is the same as salvation itself since it is entered into by faith. It says in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. And then in verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. So some previously heard the gospel good news of God's salvation, of his rest, but they did not enter into it. Why? Because they did not believe. Here, the rest is bigger than just the Sabbath day. It's kind of all of salvation in Christ. Secondly, note that the idea of entering into Sabbath rest here should be understood in the light of the larger concept of the book of Hebrews as a whole, which we've considered before, namely entering into God's presence by faith because of Christ our high priest who is made a way of access. We see this all throughout the book of Hebrews, the idea of drawing near into God's presence through Christ. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Chapter 6, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Chapter 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Just as we have salvation by entering into God's rest by faith, so also we have salvation by way of entering into God's presence through Jesus Christ. Furthermore, within that larger picture... We should understand verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Just as the author of Hebrews talks about the inability of the high priests of the old covenant to bring God's people into his presence, so also here 
he talks about Joshua's inability to bring God's people into his rest. It's interesting because you know what Joshua is in Greek? It's Jesus. That's what Jesus' name is. It's the same in the Greek. You could even read this and say, the first Jesus didn't give them rest. The implication is the second one did. Look with me at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What he means by that is that, yes, in a certain sense, Joshua did lead the people of God into God's rest in the land, but God later mentions another rest which remains, meaning that Joshua did not truly give them rest, right? Verse 10, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now there's a debate as to who the whoever is in this passage. Some say it simply refers to the believer. The believer that has entered in by faith has rested from his works. Others, such as John Owen, John Gill, say it's actually a reference to Christ. Honestly, I want to do a little bit more study of this, but I think I'm kind of leaning more that way. Um, but I, I'm tempted to go there just because it's easier for my sermon. Um, but I don't want to quite go there yet in my conscience because I haven't given it the study it deserves. I do think we may not have to necessarily choose. It may be that the author of Hebrews is simply making a general statement about the rest of those who rest after entering into his rest and ceasing from their works. It takes on a slightly different meaning whether it applies to Christ or the believer. On the one hand, with reference to Christ, he is obviously the greater Joshua who has given his people true rest. Furthermore, he has ceased from his works, and this actually fits quite well with the theme of Christ as the better high priest, since Hebrews 10.12 says, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. As high priest, his work is done, and so also as the greater Joshua, his work is done. He's entered into God's rest. Uh, oh, got lost here. Uh, furthermore, I think there's probably a reference there to Christ as the second Adam, since it talks about him doing the works of God. That's why I, I lean more to this being primarily a reference to Christ as the second Adam. Adam was called to do God's works after him and rest in God's rest after he completed the works God gave him. He never did, but Christ did. Notice the language there. Adam, or I'm sorry, it mentions the work of God. Adam would have rested in God's rest of glory, but he failed. Christ has not failed. He completed all the work that the Father gave him to do, and so now he rests at the right hand of the Father in glory. On the other hand, with reference to us, by faith we enter into this rest of Christ, our greater Joshua, and we cease from our works as well. We cease from trying to enter into that rest by works. Why? Because Christ did it all. We no longer seek to be justified by works of the law. Christ's works are sufficient, and so we rest in his works by faith. Both are true. Christ has accomplished the works God gave him, and he has provided a Sabbath rest 
for the people of God, which is the same thing as having access into God's glorious saving presence. This means that the picture of the bread or Israel basking in the light of God's Sabbath presence is ultimately a picture of what Christ has done for us in the new covenant. By his life and death, he has constituted the church, the true Israel, and we now by faith bask in the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, I think there is a beautiful picture here of how Christ giving us rest undoes the curse of the fall. It doesn't just take us where Adam never went. It also undoes the mess that Adam made. If Adam had kept the covenant of works, he would have received the blessing of God's rest. Instead, by his failure, he received not a blessing, but the curse. And interestingly, if the blessing is rest, the curse is a restlessness. It's a toilsome burdensome existence. God says to Adam in Genesis 3, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Not only does the curse bring a restless condition, it brings death. And interestingly, in the light of this curse of toil in death in Genesis 5, Noah's father names him Noah. You know what that means? Rest or comfort. It says that his father said, It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall give us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Well, just as Joshua didn't give the people of God true rest, neither did Noah, but Christ has. The greater Noah has come to truly give us rest, as he says, from the painful toil of the curse of sin. Seeing that and then reading this passage, it makes you read it in a whole new light. Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ the greater Adam, the greater Noah, the greater Joshua brings us out of the curse and into the blessing of God's rest. And yet, we might also say that in a certain sense, not only the first half of the chapter points us to the work of Christ, but also the second. If we remember that the means whereby Christ made a way for us into God's presence was for him to be put to death outside of the camp, and in fact to be put to death for blasphemy. That actually was the charge against Christ. And in fact, I titled my sermon, The Case of a Blasphemer, kind of with a double entendre there. I I was actually referring to Christ being falsely accused of blasphemy. Matthew tells us, then the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You now have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. He was, as the author of Hebrews points out, put to death outside of the camp. He says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. The God whose name we are not to blaspheme 
was put to death for blasphemy. And as he was hanging on the cross, he was blasphemed by blasphemers. They mocked him. Notice the great irony of all that. And yet by his death, Christ has taken us, who are the spiritual equivalent to blaspheming Egyptians, and he's made us Sabbath-keeping Israelites. He's taken those who deserve to die outside the camp and brought us into the very presence of God's light and glory. And though the laying on of hands on the head in this chapter does not refer to the transfer of guilt, in our case with Christ it did. It was our blasphemies. It was everything we ever said bad about God or thought bad about Him in our hearts. All that was placed upon Christ, and He was put to death as a blasphemer to redeem blasphemers. By this, we've been brought into the presence of God and made new. Let me just encourage you kids. Sin will never give you rest for your souls. Sin there is, sin can be fun in a sinful way. I'm not saying that in a positive way, okay? There is a fun element. There is pleasure and enjoyment in sin. But it will never give your soul's rest. It will never provide the true rest for your souls, which you can find in Christ. Furthermore, remember, kids, you will never enter into God's rest by your own good works. If you try to toil and work your way to heaven, you'll never get there. God says you don't actually have good works, and the more you do it, you just bring more guilt and more of a curse upon yourself. The only way to receive the blessing of the rest for your souls is by faith, by looking to Christ who did it all. You don't need to add to his works. His works are perfect. You just need to rest in them. You trust in them. You lean upon them and you receive them. And if you have that, you will enter into God's rest of salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath rest of forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. Thank you that we can worship upon that and meditate upon it on this Sabbath day. And Lord, we look with hope in our hearts towards the day when we will fully stand in the light of your glory as we worship Christ forever. We pray for those here who do not yet have eyes to see that glory by faith. She would give them eyes to see that. We pray for those saints here that are weary, that they would be renewed as the bread was renewed in the tabernacle. You'd strengthen them and refresh them, Lord, in Christ's name.